Hello, Girlboss Radio listeners. We've got another great guest coming up today. Powerhouse literary agent and my agent, Andy McNichol, will join us to talk about female mentorship and how to effectively pitch and sell anything. But first, let's talk about true religion and their genes. Nice. Very true. True, true. Speaking of true religion, they have that true fit. It just means that, you know, your size carries over to every different style. So that skinny jean, that high-waisted jean, that boyfriend cut, they're all going to fit the same. So you don't have to worry about a 28 feeling wonky in the different um, varieties There's nothing like trying on your size and it being too small. It's like the most depressing Ooh. feeling. And it makes me like, I really don't know if my butt got bigger or what. I know. Or I always say it's the material. I'm like, oh, they changed their sizing. But that's, it was that's probably good. me. Yeah. Are you wearing your true religions? Yeah, actually, these are them. And you're comfortable sitting. Love it. And they fit. I could sit all day. Are you ready to get the perfect fitting, most comfortable, and most flattering pair of jeans ever? Then, well, it's your lucky day. Right now, True Religion is giving Girlboss Radio listeners 20% off your entire purchase when you go to truereligion.com slash girlboss and enter my code girlboss at checkout. So go to truereligion.com slash girlboss and enter code girlboss at checkout for 20% off your entire order. Success. It's such a complicated idea, and yet for so long we've all collectively subscribed to a single definition of the word, which was likely given to us by a white-haired dude somewhere in a boardroom in the 1960s. And there's nothing wrong with that definition with the notion of climbing a corporate ladder with a singular focus. But it's time to make space for a few other definitions, for side hustles and well-being and failing forward, and for the idea that success is a wild ride, not the destination at the end of it. Join me for a journey into the lives of women who are redefining success and paving the way for others with grit and grace. I'm Sophia Amoruso, the founder and CEO of Girlboss Media, and this is Girlboss Radio. Andy McNichol is one of just a few partners in a huge company, William Morris Endeavor, the largest literary agency in the country and one of the largest talent agencies out there. Andy has been a literary agent at WME for 18 years. Your agent, like, that's lonely. That is a lonely time. You're like, hey, the phone's not ringing. Like, what's up? Where am I going to find a client? But then all you need to do is find one person you truly believe in because then they have a community of people. That becomes exciting. And then it sort of grows within itself. Certainly I wasn't like in the beginning, you're not selling projects all the time that you're like, and this is my life's work. I mean, you've got to learn how to do your job. She has been behind multiple New York Times bestselling authors representing a wide variety of clients such as Chrissy Teigen, Carly Kloss, Tori Birch, Alicia Silverstone, and me, me and Girlboss. So she's the reason Girlboss exists today. She's the reason that book was published. She's also my literary agent and was instrumental in crafting my book deal for Girlboss. She's also the reason this podcast exists. Watching what happened around Girlboss has been one of the great joys of my professional life. Andy has a unique ability to cut through the truth of who an author really is. She knows if you have a book in you, as she says, and empowers authors to effectively tell their story. I think the most important thing you can have is a point of view, a deep one, not mine, not Sophia is not anyone else's, but like something that you really have as a point of view, because that's the one thing that no one can give you. She's also a huge proponent of mentorship. 
Today, Andy joins us to share the perils of perfectionism and how to embrace mistakes, how to figure out what your story is and how to best tell it, and the way to find and later become a mentor. But first, I'm going to throw this to Maggie Renshaw of Girlboss to talk about what's going on here at the Girlboss offices. How's it going, Maggie? Oh, hey. So what's going on at Girlboss.com? Yes, we're introducing a little segment called Scrimp City. It's not about shrimp. It's about being scrimpy. Scrimp, scrimping. Scrimpy. Saving. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. We're diving into personal savings, trials, tribulations, how women spend money, make money, and what are they saving for. So it's women around the world. The first girl is from Alberta, Canada. She works in... Pipeline operations and logistics. Ooh. I know. Deals with that oil. And so we talk about how she saves. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How she saves. It's literally a diary of her week, which is really cool. She, her tips for saving. So she maps out her finances with Excel, meal preps on Sundays, eats at home um, on Saturdays is her splurge day, what she does to um, save on spa days. She does it at home. Really cool. Yeah. Eating at home saves so much money. I like bought swordfish the other day and barbecued it. And it's like, that would be so expensive at a restaurant. Or even if we just had like mediocre sushi, it would have cost more. She makes $4,200 a month. She's saving for her first house and she wants to buy it this year. And she also mentioned she wants to um, retire by 40. I think she makes more money than me. I want to say, I was like, live life crisis. That's nice. <laughs> but actually, instead of retiring, she's like, I'd actually love to start my own plus size clothing company. Oh, that's so So it's cool. like she takes the retirement, but then. Maybe we creates. can document how she does her career transition when she chooses to do that and how she buys her house when she does that. That's it. But I think it's really interesting to see how people save on various budgets and it's lifestyles. It's kind of a mystery. It's mm-hmm. just like, what do you do? Open a savings account and like transfer money into it when you feel like? It's like nobody really tells you. Right. It just disappears at the end of the month. And then you realize, oh, wait, where did it go? Mm-hmm. I spent it. It's all on tampons. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so that's Scrimp City. Yeah. And you can find that on girlboss.com mm-hmm. where we're creating a lot of content now. Really and good we have some stuff. exciting changes on girlboss.com that you'll see in a few weeks. We are evolving. But now, get ready to hear a great story. An interview with literary agent extraordinaire Andy McNichol. You grew up in New York, right? I grew up in New York City. I was born at NYU. And I think it's a huge part of my personality, without question. So born and raised and then lived in the Bronx for the first 13 years of my life, which also I think is hugely formative to have grown up in that neighborhood. You went to college in New York? No, I I went right across the bridge, really very, very far. I went to Yale. And in fact, the reason why I went to New Haven was because it was a really great school and close to the city, I had what I think a lot of New York City kids have, which is the sense of um, that everything else is sort of less loud or less amazing. I was one of those city kids who could never imagine anywhere else holding a candle. So I wanted to be close. I wanted the city to still be New York when you said the city, which of course I realized like annoyed everyone else from everywhere else. Because I was like, oh, you're going to the city? And they're like, 
Manhattan? I was like, well, do you know another? And they were like, uh, yeah, there's plenty of cities in the world. And I was like, mm, not really. So um, I did not go far for school, although I was super homesick. You have an interesting family background. So you are Jewish and Puerto Rican. Is that it? Yeah, I am. I was raised by my grandmother and my mom before she got married. My parents were never married. Um, in fact, I'm the product of an affair that my dad had with my mom. She worked for him at the time, and uh, she got pregnant, and she decided to keep the baby, which I'm thrilled about. Yeah, so we moved in with my grandmother in the Bronx. My mom was a single mom. Um, you know, was a very sort of strange time that you didn't see a lot of that in the community where my grandmother lived. And I was so lucky in so many ways to be uh, born into this tribe of super fierce, super fun, loud, considerate, passionate women. So I had this incredibly uh, vibrant childhood. I had no idea uh, what I was missing by sort of not having a traditional family. It, it, it didn't even occur to me till like, I want to say high school. You had a stepdad who was very near and dear to you. When did he enter the picture? So they started dating when I was seven-ish. And my mom was very conscious about that. I met him around that time. And they dated for a very long time. They got married when I was 13, but they really were together, I think, seriously, since I was seven. And uh, he changed my entire life. In fact, he adopted me. That's why my last name is McNichol. And um, Don McNichol, he was uh, a great, great example of a man that really was emotional and could accept the woman in his life exactly as she was. And it was it was wonderful to have this like female forward sort of formative years and then really see what a great partnership could look like when both people were adults and um, accepting of who the other person was, really. He adored my mother. He adored my grandmother. He and his wonderful Scottish background became obsessed with like Puerto Rican food. He was um, he was a hoot. So back to college, what did you study in college? I studied art history, which was, you know, amazing and turned all the lights on in my head just because I'd never really taken an art history class. I went to a very traditional high school history and math and English and very traditional. And I never encountered sort of interdisciplinary ways of seeing things like, oh, my God, you could look at this painting and see what was going on in history and what was going on um, artistically and what was going on with politically at the time, sort of looking through art. So I remember taking my first art history class with a woman by the name of Romy Galan, who I still think teaches at Yale, who um, had this like insane German accent and was just so attractive and sexy and brilliant and just talked about art in this way that sort of really inspired me. So I went off and uh, studied art history, probably, I think probably solely because of Romy Golan. I just was sort of starstruck by her. And uh, it became this wonderful, um, you know, education for me, not particularly useful. Um, I tried to intern at like a couple of galleries 
And I was like super confused that all of these high-minded ideals I had about art and about its origins and what it could do to shape culture that you then had to sell the work because it's a gallery. So I was like, oh, yeah, no, this is not for me. (laughs) So wait, you had an aversion to selling things? That doesn't sound like you. It's funny. I had an aversion to selling art, (laughs) like actual canvases. I didn't understand. And I was younger at the time, but I just, I thought that how could, how could something be like universally like, oh, this is worth a hundred thousand dollars. And then this is worth, you know, 20. It was more sense of, I think I didn't understand how art, fine art was valued. And your first job was in publishing. Is that right? Yep. My first job uh, out of school was at Vogue. And I feel like the Devil Wears Prada is like my personal autobiography still. Um, I was the only person who saw that movie and was like, you you see my, my life. Um, no, I, uh, I got a job there. I went for like an informational interview and they had a job available and I needed a job and I loved fashion and I loved photography and I loved coming from, you know, New York and art history. It made a lot of sense. And I got there and I was like overwhelmed by it. Um, I think it's an amazing place. It was not an amazing place for me. And that was one of those lessons that sticks out. Like I was so happy to have a job and I loved the way it sounded like, oh, I work at Vogue. But then I was like, yeah, I don't, this is not for me. And so, I mean, you started in publishing, so it's kind of not a far leap from where you are today, but the book industry is really different from fashion publications. How did that get you to where you are today? Tell me like what happened between then and now? What happened? Um, So I was at Vogue and miserable at it, like failing them. They were like, why aren't you a better assistant? And I'm like, I don't know. Um, I should be. Um, So I quit, which my parents were like, that's a ballsy move because I didn't know what I was going to do next or anything. And I took the summer off. I had like a summer vacation uh, because I was still only about two years out of college. And I sort of was looking for other jobs. I thought maybe I'd go to law school. Maybe I'd become an architect. I was literally lost, actually. I had a lot of interest, but not a lot of sense of how does one take their interest and make a career or get a job and didn't understand the difference between a job and a career at that point. So I met with my uncle's uh, boyfriend, his ex-boyfriend, who was a very close family friend of ours, who had been in um, human resources. And he asked me to do this exercise, which I actually ask people to do when they're feeling sort of like, what's my next move, which is write down five to 10 things, regardless of education, regardless of money, regardless of opportunities that you would want to be a part of, like something that would make you excited or passionate. And I was like, and I literally, I think on that list was like architecture, entertainment, Um, It was a wide list of things. It was like not anything, you know, connected. And we began to look at them and he was like, oh, entertainment. Like I used to be a dancer. I used to be represented at William Morris. Like, why don't you kind of go there for an informational interview? And I was like, okay. So he set that up and I went and I met at the time the head of human resources there. And it was a great interview. And I began to work as a temp. 
at William Morris, which was great because at that point my parents were like, you got to get out. Like, you can't keep living with us without a job. That's not going to work. So I took this job not really knowing where it would lead. And I have been there 18 years. And what was your first break as an agent? I got pushed into the books department, not because that I thought I wanted to be in books, but because it was a New York-based industry. And again, New York playing this huge role in my life. I didn't want to move to Los Angeles. And everyone was really clear that if you were going to be in film um, or TV, you at some point would have to go live in LA. So I was like looking around as to other departments. And uh, the same HR woman was like, you have to meet with this woman, Joni Evans. You have to meet with her. And I was like, I don't know, like books. Mm. And I met with Joni. And within five minutes of meeting her, I was like, you're going to change my life. Began working with her and then had another sort of like lightning bolt moment when I was able to meet and work with Jennifer Rudolph Walsh, who you know as well. She's been on the podcast. I know she has. So I got so incredibly blessed by these two women and learning from them that by the time I became my own little entity and agent, I I felt really like jazzed about what I was doing and like super excited. And it was at a very strange time because it was also the rise of the Food Network. So this is about, I don't know, maybe 10, 11 years ago. And they needed people in our department to sort of look at this underserved sector, which had been cookbooks because cookbooks weren't this huge uh, moneymaker. So I was a really young agent, very little experience, but we needed somebody who could figure out how to do cookbooks. And it wound up being one of those things that was like a total fluke that became a, a pretty big industry, not only just for us, but just in general. And But you were an assistant for how long before you became an agent? So probably much longer than anyone wants to hear, but about uh, a little under three years. Okay. That's not that bad. Answering somebody's phones, helping them do their job is wonderful. And when you're doing it for women like Joni or Jennifer, you're seeing how it works when it works, when everything works and it's great and everyone takes your call and everyone wants what you're selling. You're a first year agent. Like that's lonely. That is a lonely time. You're like, Hey, the phone's not ringing. Like what's up? Where am I going to find a client? Who am I going to be with? Um, I'm an agent to no one. <laughs> exactly. That's on my on my plaque. Like, hello, I'm an agent with no clients. You know, and you have that sort of moment. But then you've got to learn how to do your job. What's a normal day in the life of an agent or a literary agent? Are you meeting with people? Are you making phone calls? Like, what do your days look like? You know, I think the great thing about being an agent is it's a little bit like having your own sort of startup all the time because it truly is um, really client focused. So some weeks, you know, some people, no week or no day would look exactly the same because it really is generated to some degree by the interest and sort of trajectory of your clients. And uh, there is a lot of outgoing phone calls, a lot of, you know, correspondence, but it's also in you know this because we work together. It's a lot of like, you know, iterations on an idea and sort of, yeah, what do you think about this? What do you think about that? I'm also super, super blessed to work almost primarily in nonfiction at this point in my life. And I have been able to go on the journeys uh, that the clients have wanted to go on. So it 
brings you into licensing. It brings you into non-scripted TV. It brings you into endorsement. So I get to visit a lot of different silos and columns because we spend so much time thinking about what is the right narrative for each client. I actually think that's the core part of my day is really thinking about what does this person want to put into this into the world? How are they going to do it? And how are we going to do it in like narrative form that people want to buy and that they want to connect to? Because it's as hard to work on something that like sells a ton of copies as it is to work on something that doesn't sell. So you like, you know, you want to like be like, what is, what does the reading public want to hear? Like, what do people want to learn? How do they want to meet their audience? And I talk a lot about that with my clients. We email a lot about it. Sometimes we text a lot about it. A lot of phone calls though. That is true. And a big part of your job is staying up on culture, like knowing where things are going. There was no book like Girl Boss before Girl Boss came out, you know, and there's other examples of this I'm sure you've had in your career. How do you stay close to culture so that you can, you know, you can choose the right things to, you know, do deals with? I, it's so funny. So the woman who, um, whose last name I literally always murder, but she was the president of Bravo. Um, and we absolutely have her to thank for like the joy that is Andy Cohen. Um, and I like love Bravo. She was this Princeton graduate and she also had this like incredibly, like she loved reality television. She's like, okay, so I can't be the only human being who loves like reality TV and has like multiple degrees from like a fancy school. She's like, I'm going to just program for myself. So I tend to like want to be interested in things that like I genuinely have, um, a beginning interest in already. So I've always been interested in, you know, young women and women's issues and fashion and health and wellness and spirituality and personal care and wellness. So I tend to go deep into those areas because they're areas that I'm interested in as a person. And I think you can't feign that kind of passion and enthusiasm for like just a deep personal interest. So I think it starts there. And then what are the voices that move me or, you know, um, younger people in my office now? Like that's been a trip because I've always been the younger person in my office. And like that shift has occurred after 40. I am not even close to the youngest person in my office. So like sort of knowing whose um, who's taste gels with my own and what they're interested in and how. And I can also at this point like differentiate between like, oh, this is like a really cool thing that's coming out into the universe or something that I should be involved in. I have to be really interested in something to do a good job on it. I asked Andy why she greenlit Girl Boss in the first place. I wasn't an author. I was a college dropout at the time. I wasn't really writing much. I was copywriting for emails talking about new arrivals every week. But I was so curious. Why did she take a chance on me? I remember when I first met you, you had probably one of the greatest answers, and I've told you this, to why do you want to write a book that I'd heard? And so many people start that conversation, well, oh, I should write a book. I've been told I should write a book. I should do this. Anytime anyone uses the word should, I'm like, not for me. Just because that's not, you know, that's not saying I want to do this. That's saying like, oh, maybe. And you really said, you're like, it was the time of lean in and it was the time of the beginning of this conversation about women and empowerment and the workforce. And they were speaking to 
a specific type of woman. I don't think people were speaking to the girl boss audience at that point. And girl boss, the book didn't even exist at that point. And you said to me, because I want people to like, you know, be inspired. And there are more of me out there than there are of like this very specific type of person who's gone to all the right schools and done all the, you know, sort of supposedly right things. And I was like, that's, that's a community. That's an answer. And I didn't know what we were going to go off and create, but I knew it was, we were going to go off and do something. Who knew that four years later, I'd be running a company called Girl Boss? I mean, I would love to say I did, but I would love to say that. <laughs> that was probably, that was at least five years ago now, and we've been working together that long. Andy's responsible for making this podcast initially happen, for the other two books that I've published since then, for the Netflix series that we put together. I mean, WME has been really pivotal in my career. And yeah, I would say that there's almost, there's no one, maybe next to Gary Stiffelman who introduced me to you, that has been more influential in my career. And and I wouldn't have a second act if it weren't for, for you saying yes to this crazy idea to write a book called Girl Boss. So thanks, Andy. Oh, well, now I'm just blushing, but you can't see me. Uh, <laughs> uh, but it's also... You know, again, in that sort of like community of people, I think what I've beyond just watching this amazing thing occur, which has been so fun and foundational for so many, is also the other women that I've met through you and in the community of women who you speak to, um, whether they be entrepreneurs as well and your contemporaries or your listeners or readers. That's been, I think, the greatest part of watching all this happen. And also, you knew that title always. Mm-hmm. Like, it was the only title ever. Yeah, you like you were like, oh, this is the title of the book, and it has to have a hashtag. And at the time, everyone was like, huh? You were like, no, this is going to work. And it's so funny because I remember when we were out there selling it, a particular publisher said, oh, I mean, I don't know if that girl is going to want to read a business book. Um, I don't know if that customer it was reads business so books. insulting. Oh, it was <laughs> so insulting. By the way, I tell that story only because it's the most insulting for a book person to say about a whole group of people. Millennial women, read. period. They're not yeah. going to read. Yeah. yeah. Is insulting is like... to say the least, but it also goes to show what a different world we live in um, five years, fast forward five years. And certainly we were not you know, titling books with hashtags at this point. And you were like, no, that means that everyone will be able to search for it. It was almost like you were doing like remedial influencing skills. Super remedial, (laughs) but it worked. (laughs) No, but even to like the publishing community who like needed a little bit of like, you know, hashtag help. So it's been funny. We've seen a lot since then. um, And people have figured it out. And also people have figured out that this is, you know, as with everything, like, you know, there was an underserved community of young women who wanted something more than relationship advice, where they wanted relationship advice and like, how do I start a business? How do I raise money? How do I cook chicken? Like you could, they wanted to learn. And I think that was exciting to watch. Should I write a book on how to cook chicken? Is that what I you're going to say? Yeah, I think that should be the next one. We could do an entire book, Girl Boss Chicken. 
We have so much more with Andy McNichol coming up, but first let's talk about ShipStation. Oh man, we love ShipStation. ShipStation, we've gotten really good at talking about ShipStation. <laughs> I think so. If you don't know what ShipStation is, which if you've listened to any episodes of Girl Boss Radio, I'm sure you do. Uh, ShipStation is a service that integrates with all the popular selling channels: Etsy, Squarespace, Shopify. And lets you really easily print labels and ship your orders. They work with FedEx, USPS, UPS, and they'll find the best price for you with each of those shipping carriers. And you can use it on your phone. So anywhere that you go, you can keep track of your orders. And right now, Girlboss Radio listeners can try ShipStation free for 30 days and get an additional month free only if you use my promo code GIRLBOSS. Go to ShipStation.com, and before you do anything else, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in GIRLBOSS. That's ShipStation.com, S-H-I-P-S-T-A-T-I-O-N.com, enter GIRLBOSS. ShipStation, make Make ship happen. We're going to continue with Andy in just a minute, but before we do, I also want to talk a bit about our friends at Skillshare. I love Skillshare. Mm. I mean, I love learning. That's Mm -hmm. why I do this podcast. I get to interview the most interesting women who've had the most interesting careers, who've made the most interesting mistakes. Mm -hmm. And Skillshare is an online learning platform where you can get 18,000 of those kinds of learnings in business, marketing, entrepreneurship, technology, and more. You can take a class in productivity or social media strategy. And they do have classes in just about everything. And once you sign up, you get unlimited access. So you can take as many classes as you want, as many times as you want. And you guys are going to like not believe this, this introductory price they're giving you guys for all of their courses. Join the millions of students already learning on Skillshare today with a special offer. Get two months of Skillshare for just uh, 99 cents. So go learn. You have two months to learn as much as you can. That's right. Skillshare is offering Girlboss listeners two months of unlimited access to over 18,000 classes for just uh, 99 cents. That is less than a dollar. Mm-hmm. To sign up, go to Skillshare.com slash Girlboss. Again, S-K-I-L-L-S-H-A-R-E dot com slash Girlboss to start your two months now. That's Skillshare.com slash Girlboss. And now let's get back to the conversation with Andy McNichol. Andy mentors many young women and has been mentored herself by many women. We talked about the best way to find a female mentor. Similar interests is a good place to start. Like if you're not super into, you know, wellness or spirituality, it would be hard to be like, hey, you know, I want to learn all about this area that I know nothing about. I think you have to start from like, again, I think it's all about having, knowing yourself and knowing your point of view, then saying, okay, like who in my company or in my sort of 360 world of people um, share some of those things and what can I learn from them and really be open to it, but also be useful. Like, I think like sometimes when people are like, oh, I really want to mentor, it's like, what can you do for me? And it's a two-way street. Like, so in a lot of the things when you were saying like, oh, how do you find new voices? I really look on people that I work with, but like also younger women that I mentor and spend time with whose enthusiasm and taste and interests I trust. It's a two-way street mentorship. And I think like sometimes it's 
always like, oh, how can you teach me how to do X? But like, I want to know what you're interested in. I want to know what you're doing at night because, you know, I don't have, you know, I'm not doing what I did at 20. I'm not, you know, going to see all the, you know, music and I'm not reading all of the like indie mags and I'm not going to all of like the tech meetups. Like what, what moves you? And even if it's not like, hey, your future is here with us, it's like, I want to help you find your future because I see you just like going after it. So I think really developing a full, rich life that connects to your work life is something that's important. I want to talk a little bit about failure and whatever that means, because, you know, there are very few things that are as final as what failure really sounds like. But we all make mistakes. I've made a lot of mistakes. You've watched me make a lot of mistakes. You've actually coached me when I've made mistakes. And I've always appreciated that. What are some of the biggest mistakes that you've made in your career? And how did you how did you handle them? I think early in my career, I was very, 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 uh, you know, committed to the idea of being right. I had to be right. Oh my God, I, I did the I did the homework. This was the right answer. And why isn't it going the way I wanted it to go? And I became like, even with clients, like I became obsessed with like, no, 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 this is the thing you have to do. You have to do this. Um, not realizing that. You could be right and still lose the client. You could be right and lose the deal. I was so interested in being right uh, that I was not taking in all of the other st- you know, things that were actually happening. And my job is not to be right. My job is not even to, um, to go in one direction. My job is to listen to my client and what do they need and how do I do the best for them in the moment that we're in. And that took me a long time. And I think early in my career, my missteps were not knowing how to fully listen, that my only job really was listening to the client and doing the best for them in that moment, which did not mean that it was ultimately the best in any situation. It was just in that moment. And I think I lost clients because of that early on. That was a painful lesson. And also, you know, the other big thing is none of it's fatal. None of it's fatal. No one's doing brain surgery. So, like, you're not going to lose anyone on the table. There's always going to be another day. We're going to try our best. And none of it is really fatal. That was another big one. Listening more and it's going to be okay. Even the worst scenario is still going to be okay. It's true. Yeah. And people say, oh, Sophia, you're so resilient. And it's like, what? Like, I didn't go anywhere. I'm not bouncing back from anything. That happened. But I'm like, still here. I'm still healthy. My parents are alive. Like, I'm fine. You know, three poodles. What in the world could I complain about? Like a fourth poodle, if you get one, that's what you're (laughs) going to complain about. How important is reputation? You know, entertainment is such an, you know, industry that's reliant on relationships and people talk they do um what what have you seen happen with reputations in your career and how can you how can you keep your nose clean i think the most important thing about keeping you know above water and your nose clean and just is be transparent like no one's saying again people are going to make mistakes. People are going to make decisions that you're like, I can't believe that like given all the decisions in the world, this is the one you're going to choose. Um, but when you're upfront about it, I think people are like, you know what? I wouldn't do that, but like, that's okay. I think when people are not transparent and by the way, those are tough calls to make like, Hey, I'm going to go do this without you. Hey, um, I want to explore something else. Hey, I don't want to do this. Like these are complicated, not great calls. To hear about them from somebody else 
or to fudge the truth on those things is a terrible idea. Mm-hmm. It feels, I've done that. I've done that. It feels and, easy. And you've corrected me. Well, it's not even about correcting. It's just that like people can get over bad news. It's somebody like once told me this, like not answering is the worst fucking answer. A bad answer, you know, you can get over. But not answering or not telling the person the actual answer is so much worse. And I remember that. And it turns out to be true because it, somebody could say like, oh, maybe we didn't have the best working experience, but like they were upfront about it. And I think to think that everyone's always going to like you or always going to be like, wow, she's amazing. It's the best person I've ever worked with is unrealistic too. But I think being straight about it, it's probably the way people go forth. Anna Winter once said, you know, I don't trust people who've never been fired. And I understand that. It's sort of like, you got, you're not always going to agree with people and that's okay, but it's how you deal with it and being upfront about it, I think is true. But there is a lot of talking that goes on in entertainment, like, oh, this person, this, this person, that. And you also learn to like not listen to it. We just spoke with Sarah Rob O'Hagan last week about, you know, you should, we should all be so lucky to get fired. And Mm -hmm. I totally agree with that. As do I. You don't feel that way at the time. No one does. It's humbling, but I think it's really important. It goes back to failure. Like, it's important. You've worked with so many assistants over the years. You were an assistant. Now these people have become agents. You're an agent. What are the traits that you see early on in someone who is going to grow in their career, who's going to make it, who's going to become a great agent? It's going to sound so hokey. Like, unbridled enthusiasm for even the most menial of things. Like, they're psyched to just be in the game. Again, I think in our culture, a a strong personality helps. Engagement. Like, somebody who's like, oh, by the way, you're reading this book. I'm reading a book by, like, a guy who went to the same school as this one. Like, have you checked this out? Like, somebody who can connect the two dots ahead of where you are is a quality that I think the people who've gone on all share. It's this idea of what's next. I think that if you have to, as a manager, tell people, okay, do this, then do this, then do that, then do that, that's concerning. If I tell somebody, okay, do this, and then then they can come up with the next three things that come from that, that's like, okay, let me look at this. Let me look at this person. Over the past year, the Me Too movement has shaken Hollywood and shown itself to be pervasive, affecting every level of the industry. Andy shared her experience and how this movement could change the landscape for young women entering the entertainment industry today. I had really, really strong female mentors, and I come from an industry, sort of the book business is um, predominantly female. So I did not have that. I've been very supported. But I think that it's an incredible time in in a funny way to be a woman in the entertainment business. I think this level of disruption only provides sort of a great opportunity. And that's what I'm seeing in in what the material that I'm reading and the women, the young women who work for us. I mean, it's it's inspiring. It's it is amazing, the rate of change. 
And speaking of change, I mean, things must be changing in your company as a result of this, and hopefully in all the companies that are in entertainment, pretty much every company there is. How have you seen the dynamics change, if at all? We spend a lot of time really committed to this. We were committed to leadership in all ways before this happened. So I actually feel really lucky. We are about 48% female, our workforce. So we have a very sort of, you know, half and half workforce. Half of our uh, department heads are female. This is long before all of this. So we didn't have to like ramp up to make changes. Like we were in the conversations. We wanted, you know, you know, equality in all ways and equality in storytelling. I think what's exciting is that now the buyers are are really interested in all of this. So we're getting a lot more voices internally and externally. So I think that there's only good from that. But we definitely have always had that. And, you know, again, we had a lot of strong women working within our company. We have a lot of people involved in the inclusion rider and in Time's Up. So I feel, I feel we've had great trailblazers in that way. And so the ranks are just getting bigger. Andy has successfully worked in so many different genres, from memoirs to cookbooks to fiction. I asked her if there is a through line in all of these works that predicts success and what ultimately makes a good story. It's as much what you want to tell as much as what the other person, the sort of, you know, reader, whether that reader is digital or, you know, in print, what that reader wants from you. Because it has to, that synergy has to exist. There are plenty of people who are like, I want to write a book on X. And I'm like, that's not what people connect to you about. So there is this sort of Venn diagram where what you want to say and what somebody wants to hear from you overlap. And I think, again, it's about listening to questions people ask you. Like, again, I do primarily nonfiction. So people who have public lives or have a platform, I hate that word, but there's for lack of it, you know, it is what it is, uh, who have some some sort of, you know, pulpit that they can shout from. And when they sort of say, okay, what's the question you get asked the most? And they have like a really, you know, a connected point of view answer, something that's really true to them and authentic, that's a book in you. And if somebody is asking you, mostly when I ask people, what's the question you get asked the most? It really is very, very connected to um, their job or what they're doing or how they do what they do. Sometimes it gets difficult for people because they do that uh, thing so intuitively that they never thought about how they do what they do or why they do what they do. Um, And so all of a sudden it like opens up this window where you're like, oh my God, like, why do I do what I do? Like, how did I find my purpose? And it leads people, I think, to these really fulfilling paths. If you've ever wondered what it takes to publish a book, Andy McNichol has got you covered. I asked Andy for practical tips for our Girlboss listeners on how to write, pitch, and publish a book. If you love a book, go to the back of it. In the acknowledgments, there's going to be the agent. They'll probably, if the person used um, a collaborator, the person's editor, and start familiarizing yourself. Like, everything's a little bit of homework. Like, reverse engineer the process a little bit. Like, who's publishing books that you really like? You know, does one person represent a lot of people you like? Like, figure out what that sort of 
where your community of people would be like, oh, I really love this. I really like that. Oh, this, this person edited this book. They edited that book. Like, okay. So like we're sharing similar interests in that way. And then what I always ask anyone is what's the differentiating property? Like what is the differentiating quality that you have to bring to bear on this topic that no one else has? So sometimes it's the sheer number of people who follow you on Instagram. Sometimes it's the sheer number of people you reach because you're on a, you know, daily chat show in the morning. You know, that's, you know, the biggest ways to have platforms. But what I'm fascinated by are people who have smaller but super aggregated audiences. Like, you know, somebody has like, you know, 50 million followers. Like, okay, so... engagement would be, could be small and you would still sell something. But what's fascinating is people who have like a hundred thousand followers, but their engagement is like over half. Like that's those people I'm interested in because niche communities, I also think, um, really are breaking through. Another thing that came up on last week's podcast, and this seems like it's becoming a theme is don't be great for many, be great for a few. I literally couldn't agree with that more. Like if you try to be for everyone, like that's a sure way to be for no one. So this is something that I've learned from you is strike while the iron's hot, right? Like there are windows of opportunity that we have that open for us to do things, almost like the light shining through the clouds. And if you miss those, those, those windows do close. Am I right? I would love to be like Glenda the Good Witch and be like, no, they don't. They're always open. They close. They close. They close. They close. So you got to like, you know, throw Thor's hammer (laughs) when the time is right. What is the art of the deal? Like, how do you get a deal done? (laughs) And I think the art of the deal is a Donald Trump book. So maybe I should use a different. I actually bought it and I was really embarrassed to have it on my. I should not admit that. But I figured there must be something to learn from this monster. Anyway, I haven't read it and I should probably return it or burn it. But. What is the art of the deal, Andy? I wish I had the answer to that. Um, I actually have to say, more than the art of the deal, say yes. Say yes to, to most things. If you are so lucky to have an opportunity or, like, the light shine through a cloud, like, again, you don't always, you don't always have to know the end result when you jump. I think that there's a value in just doing it. Okay, let's get this done. We will figure it out. I trust my intuition. I trust myself. I trust my team. Like, let's let's do this. And that is very important. Saying yes to things, I think is very important in the art of the deal. And then also, um, again, I think it always goes back to having a point of view. If something, if if you don't have that, then there is no deal to make. Unless you actually make something you're proud of, like really proud of, it doesn't matter. Like doing something just to do it is miserable. (laughs) I always have seen whether it's designing a blouse or trying to come up with a book idea, which, you know, we've actually tried, you know, Girl Boss just happened. Nasty Galaxy kind of just happened. But, you know, there's times where you've been like, is this what we want to do? Is that what we want to do? Which is kind of a first for me. And you mm-hmm. know when something's right, when all 
everything aligns, you know, I think that nasty so gal, we true. would not, we would not make something if it just, we kept tweaking it and tweaking it and tweaking it and it just still wasn't right. It's like throw away all of the things that are causing resistance and just focus on the things that want to be. And I think that can apply to anything that you're doing. And, um, the path of least resistance is always, always the easiest. I'm not, a, and it's so funny. Cause I think that we always like, there's a, well, I would say that I'm the type of person who's like, well, maybe there's no resistance because this is bad. Like, it, I can, like, reverse yeah. that in my head. Is, is this too easy? God, is, are these people around me dumb? Yeah, like, like is this I could so definitely... obvious that it's not going to break through? Like, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and I could, like, do that. But I actually think that that's a very important piece of advice. If you have to tweak something, and I mean anything, like, again, a blouse, a proposal, a relationship, it's not for you. Because mm-hmm. it will never fit. You know, it'll just never work. Yeah. I think uh, we both tried to do that with relationships, didn't we? Absolutely. Um, we, could, we could work this clothing metaphor for a while, but I think that's really true. And when you feel that sort of ease, it actually means all systems go, keep going. You'll get there. Before she left, I asked Andy to tell us about her most recent girl boss moment. I was stressing out about a deal literally two days ago, like really stressing out uh, a deal that had some financial, uh, it was a high, it was a high advance mark. And I was having a very difficult time closing it. And I started getting very nervous um, about like, oh, why am I not hearing from this person? What am I doing? What am I not doing? Getting very, very nervous. And sometimes you can create a problem when you let your anxiety sort of dictate the emails you're writing, how you're following up with people. And I was like, you know what? I'm going to step back. I'm just literally going to step back. It's all here. All the answers are here. And the ability sometimes to just say, I'm going to, I'm going to know when to get myself out of this for, for a moment was really important. And I, and I did, and it's, it's actually working off, working really well, but I don't think that an, an earlier form of my career, I would have had the confidence to just put a pin in it for a minute. Sometimes you can take a beat. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes you have to let like the forces do the work for you and can't control everything and have to let, let things be. And then you can improve them once they've fallen, but sometimes things are in the air and you can't really grab them. They're flying around. Right. Does that make sense? It totally makes sense. And I think that there is a fear that, you know, I think being scared in a lot of ways is good. It means you care about what you do, but you can't let that fear run you in in our art of the deal moment. You can't let that fear run any deal. It would not work out well, but you have, you know, sometimes you are scared and I think that's okay. Um, I don't think having a girl boss moment means you don't have any fear. I mean, I think you, it means you, you acknowledge it and then you act, you, you take a beat and you say, okay, how am I going to act with this? Not let it run you. And then I would say, like, it, it's super fun to, like, talk to you, um, although we're not in the same room. It's, it's, this has been fun. And to sort of still have all the work conversations we have is, you know, I always have girl boss moments when I'm talking to you because it, it's just how, I, how we communicate. So that's fun. You know, the thing we're cracking here at Girl Boss that we don't have the answer to, but we really want to facilitate a conversation around with many women's voices is what does success mean? It means something different for each of us. What does success mean for you, Andy? I think it's what brings joy and passion into my life. So 
that's the filter with which I look at having a successful relationship, a successful job, a successful spiritual life. Like I want to, and I want to find joy and passion in that, which I do just getting by or, um, Oh God, I got to get up. I got to go to the gym. Of course we all have moments like that, but if what you're doing doesn't bring you joy, like don't do it. And I think that a successful life to me, personal or professional, has that element of when I was little, I used to call it the happy learning feeling. And I remember like having feelings like that of like when you really just, when something blew your mind or you learned how to do something or you're skipping and you're making up your own song, like I want to have elements of that in my day all the time. Thank you guys so much for joining me on another episode of Girl Boss Radio today. Please subscribe, share the show with your friends if you love it, share it on your social media, leave us a rating in Apple Podcasts, and we'll be back next week 